All right, well, happy Father's Day. The sermon that we're going to hear today is not particularly a Father's Day sermon, but as you listen to the sermon, and if you are a father, please take the lead in applying this truth in your family. Let's pray before we hear this word. Oh God, it's a wonderful and fearful thing to come before your word. Your word gives blessing, it gives joy, but it also sets the standard. It even sits in judgment on us if we do not keep it, if we do not revere it. Because you are a holy God, a great God, a God worthy of love and fear. God, as we explore this beautiful truth today, help me to be able to explain it Help the people to be able to understand it and to take it to heart. I pray, God, that we might enjoy the blessing that you have given us in the church to the fullest extent. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of you may have heard or know the hymn, I Love Thy Kingdom, Lord. According to hymnal.net, This hymn is the oldest American hymn still in use today. Listen to the words of this hymn. I love thy kingdom, Lord, the house of thine abode, the church our blessed Redeemer bought with his own precious blood. I love the church, O God. Her walls before thee stand, dear as the apple of thine eye, engraven on thy hand. For her my tears shall fall, For her my prayers ascend. To her my cares and toils be given till till toils and cares shall end. Beyond my highest joy, I prize her heavenly ways, her sweet communion, solemn vows, her hymns of love and praise. Sure as thy truth shall last, to Zion shall be given the brightest glories earth can yield and brighter bliss of heaven. Beautiful words. Clearly the men who wrote it and set it to music were men who deeply loved and appreciated God's church. But do we? How much do you love God's church? Do you treasure the fellowship you experience with your brothers and sisters? Do you make the times of worship and instruction a priority in your life? Or do you have a more ho-hum attitude about church? Even seeing the times of church ministry or church assembly as a burden. We are tempted to take this latter attitude today, especially with so many of life's difficulties and obligations and pleasures ready to distract us from church life. However, if we knew and remembered what church is like in God's eyes, we would guard our times of assembly and ministry as a precious treasure. To help us regain the right perspective, I'd like us to take a look at Psalm 133. So please open your Bibles there. Psalm 133, page 632 if you're using the Pew Bible. This is near the end of the book of Psalms. Psalm 133, or page 632. 
There are many New Testament passages that teach us critical truths regarding God's church. But Psalm 133 uniquely emphasizes how valuable the assembly of the local church really is. As we read this text, you'll notice that the original subject of this passage is not the New Testament church. But as we carefully study these verses, you will see that everything God declares here about the gathering of his people in this special Old Testament context is also true of the New Testament church. Let me read Psalm 133. It's a short psalm, only three verses. A song of ascents of David. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, coming down upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord, that is Yahweh, commanded the blessing, life forever. At first glance, this psalm may make you scratch your head. What is this all about? What's up with this beard thing? This all sounds kind of messy. Is anything really significant present in this tiny psalm? Actually, this psalm is quite profound. It's expertly constructed and vivid in its depiction of truth. For us to appreciate this psalm, though, we must get straight the literary and historical context. So let's do that. First, let's talk about the literary context of this psalm. Psalm 133 is one of the psalms. That is, one of the worship songs or prayer poems put into an official collection to instruct the people of Israel on how they should believe, love, and obey their God. Traditionally, Bible commentators have said that the psalms have no specific order as a whole. But there has more recently been a movement among Bible interpreters to see a general progression in the Psalms that reflects Israel's historical and future kingdom experience. I favor this latter view. The progression of the Psalms follows the book's five main divisions, the five books of the Psalms. Book one, consisting of Psalms 1 to 41, features many Psalms of struggle written by David himself. King David This first book of the Psalms reflects the conflict Israel experienced as David established his divinely ordained rule in Israel. Book 2, Psalms 42 to 72, features Psalms that involve nations outside of Israel, reflecting David's victory over his enemies and Israel's expanded influence to the nations. In book 3, however, which is Psalms 73 to 89, Israel is devastated by foreign nations. And the Davidic king's crown is cast into the dust. All of the exilic psalms poignantly appear in book 3. In book 4, Psalms 90 to 106, we see a matured Israel returning from exile. With many psalms affirming God's sovereign rule and the future establishment of God's kingdom. And then finally in book 5, Psalms 107 to 150, we see many psalms of praise and also of eschatological blessing. 
These psalms reflect the climax of redemptive history, the joyful establishment of the kingdom of God on earth and the accomplished redemption of Israel. Our psalm, Psalm 133, falls within this fifth book, generally typifying Israel's future state, experiencing the full blessing of God via his rule by his Messiah in Jerusalem. While there is this broad context of the Psalms to be aware of, there's also a more local context that we also need to understand. Because Psalms 120 to 134 are a unique set in Book 5 of the Psalms. Each of these Psalms, from 120 to 134, start with the same heading in the original Hebrew. A song of ascents. What is a song of ascents? The meaning of this term is debated. But the majority view is that the Song of Ascents were songs specifically sung by the Israelite pilgrims as they went up to Jerusalem for religious feasts. Now I say going up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem, though in the south centrish part of Israel, was a city of high elevation, situated on a number of hills or mountains. Therefore, no matter which direction you came from, Israelites went up to or ascended to Jerusalem, especially for the feasts. Now, what are these feasts? Well, recall that in the Torah, that is the first five books of the Bible, the law of Moses, God commanded the Israelites to assemble three times a, three times a year in Jerusalem for three different feasts. And there was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, or Passover, celebrated in April or May. Then there was the Feast of Harvest, sometimes also called the Feast of First Fruits or the Feast of Weeks or even Pentecost. And that was celebrated in May or June. May or June. And then there was the Feast of Ingathering, also called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, and that was celebrated in June or July. Because most of the people celebrating these feasts did not live in Jerusalem, the population of Jerusalem would, smel- would swell tremendously during the feast weeks as tens of thousands of men, often bringing their families, came to spend time in Jerusalem and worship around God's house. Such worship was an obligation for all Jewish men while the tabernacle and the temple, tabernacle and then the temple, were in Jerusalem. So these songs of ascents most likely were for the singing of the different Hebrews as they traveled from their towns to Jerusalem to celebrate God's feasts. Now, like the book of Psalms as a whole, there is also a general progression in the Song of Ascents, in the Songs of Ascents. Psalm 120 starts with a Jew crying to God for help because he is oppressed in a foreign land. But Psalm 121 sees the author turn toward the mountains of the Lord for hope and help. And then in Psalm 122, the men of Israel say to one another, let us go up to the house of the Lord, that is, the house of Yahweh. And the preceding psalms reflect the journey of God's people up to Jerusalem. By the time we reach Psalm 133 and 134, the last two in this set of Song of Ascents, the pilgrims have arrived in Jerusalem and are celebrating and calling on others to bless God. So we see this literary context. Let's now consider the historical context and the occasion for which, for which Psalm 133 was written. Look at the heading, a heading of Psalm 133. It says, 
besides a song of ascents, it also says of David. While grammatically this phrase could indicate the subject of this psalm was David, the best understanding of this phrase as it is used in the psalms is one of authorship. This psalm was penned by David, the divinely ordained king of Israel and forefather of our Lord Jesus. David's authorship means that this psalm was written while Israel was still a united kingdom. Remember that Israel did not have many days of national unity. There were only under three rulers where they won kingdom. You had Saul, David, and Solomon. After Solomon, you got two kingdoms. Northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. And even during the reigns of those three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, there were a number of rebellions and conflicts. So days of peace were rare. But as we'll see in this song, this song is set during a time of national peace and cohesion. Not only is there one kingdom, but there is peace within this kingdom. We should also note that because we're in David's reign, that means the temple has not yet been built. Nevertheless, we can see in this psalm the specialness of Jerusalem, or Zion. By the time of this psalm, then, Jerusalem has already been marked out as a special place to God, and David has already brought the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. So what is the occasion inspiring this psalm? Well, from the details of the literary context and from the details, of, or the details within the psalm about Jerusalem and brothers dwelling together, the most plausible answer for the occasion is that David is himself experiencing one of Israel's religious feasts in Jerusalem. He sees brothers literally dwelling together in Zion, since all Israel has come up to celebrate a feast, and he writes a song in response. What's David's purpose in this song? David writes to encourage Israel to treasure their united worship as God's people. Israel, David says, treasure your united worship. This message from David was also written to us. Therefore, brothers and sisters, here is God's message to us today. Calvary, treasure your united worship as God's people. Treasure your united worship as God's people. And when I say worship, I don't just mean singing songs, but everything that worship really entails, all acts of obedience, service, and praise done together with God's people out of love and fear for God. Let's see how David develops this message about united worship in a concise poetic form. This psalm is very straightforward in its organization and can be divided into three main points. First, we have the goodness of united worship proclaimed. Second, we have the goodness of united worship described. And third, we have the goodness of united worship explained. For the rest of our time today, this morning, we're going to explore these three points and then talk about how this message from David to Israel relates to us today in the church. Our first point comes from verse 1. So let's look at that verse again. David says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. In this verse, we see the goodness of united worship proclaimed. 
This verse starts with the word behold. This word draws our attention to the proclamation. King David has something to declare and he wants people to listen. What does David declare? How good and how pleasant. Notice the word how starting off these phrases. These are not questions, they're exclamations. And notice the word good. Good can have many shades of meaning in Hebrew as in English. Good can refer to righteousness, to benefit, or to pleasure. So what sense does good have here? Well, our second word, pleasant, helps us define what sense of goodness we're talking about. In fact, whenever we see these two words used together in the Old Testament, good becomes a synonym of pleasant. So David is really saying the same thing twice. He's referring to that which is pleasing, that which is enjoyable, that which is delightful. So David says at the beginning of verse 1, how pleasing it is, how enjoyable it is. But what is it? What is so great? What's so pleasant, King David? He tells us in the next phrase, brothers dwelling together in unity. It is so pleasant for brothers to dwell together in unity. The word brothers in the Old Testament almost always has the sense of familial relationship, an actual brother. And some commentators suggest that David is making a comment in this psalm about nuclear families. There may have been some proverbs at this time extolling the blessing of having brothers in a family get along and live together, since such a case is rare, and David may be drawing on such phrases. But even if David is drawing on proverbs about actual brothers, the context here suggests David is broadening the customary use of the term. David doesn't just refer here to brothers in one family, but all the men of Israel. Brothers here refers to all the seed of Abraham, who technically are all related, and in a sense, brothers. David is saying, how great it is to have all the brethren of Israel dwell together. But but dwell together how? Notice the final phrase, in unity. Our translation in the New American Standard of this phrase comes from a somewhat curious construction in Hebrew. David's line literally reads, for brothers to dwell also together. Why the also? What's the sense of that? David appears to be giving extra emphasis to the togetherness of these brothers. And translators have indicated such with the phrase in unity. These are not just brothers dwelling in the same place. These are brothers dwelling together. There's a special unity to these families of Israel as they dwell together. Now, what is causing David to say this? We'll consider again the occasion. David, from his royal fortress, or as he walks through the streets of Jerusalem during a week of the feast, he's noticing just how united Israel is as they worship God. Three aspects of their unity surely stood out. First, they're all in the same place. All Israel, or nearly all Israel, has come to dwell in Jerusalem, the place specially chosen by God as a place of worship. Second, they're all taking part in the same action. They're all celebrating one of God's feasts. They're all giving praise to God. They're all obeying what God commanded them to do. And third, they're all worshiping for the same reason, out of love and holy fear for Yahweh. Yet, These people are all so different. Young and old, men, women and children, members of all the different tribes of Israel, people from big cities, people from tiny hamlets, shepherds, farmers, soldiers, government officials, priests, Levites, 
even foreign proselytes and God-fearers. These celebrants assuredly did not all have the same depth of theological understanding, and many qualities could have divided them. But they were, nonetheless, united in their love and obedience to Yahweh, and in a tangible expression of this unity, they all come to the feast. Now, generally, people find it difficult to dwell together because of their many differences. Just look at different situations we have in the world today. But Israel has come as one, and they all now dwell together in God's city. King David, but one of the many feast participants, he rejoices to see his brethren united in worship, and he therefore makes this declaration. This is the first point of this psalm. The goodness of united worship proclaimed. Already, we have good reason to treasure our own united worship as God's people. God's spirit-filled king proclaimed the goodness of it. Surely we can believe God's spirit and God's king. But as is often the case when you find something good, something valuable, or something enjoyable, you don't just want others to know that it's good, but you want to give them some idea of how good it is. After all, David does say in verse 1, how? So, we might ask, just how good is what David is declaring? David elaborates in verses 2 and 3 with two images of goodness and blessing that comes down from above. This is the psalm's second point, the goodness of united worship described. Let's look at the first of these two images describing the goodness of united worship in verse 2. Verse 2 says, It is like the precious oil upon the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. Our first image, describing the goodness of united worship, is an image of holy blessing. United worship is a holy blessing. In this verse, we can see the poetic element of this psalm really coming out. Because notice, these lines do not reveal the full image of what David describes until the last line. You've got four lines here, four phrases here. They gradually reveal the image. This technique, this poetic technique, is called delayed identification. Delayed identification allows David to draw the listener in to what he's describing and then intensify the image by only gradually revealing it. Let me show you what I mean. David begins the line by likening united worship to precious oil upon the head. Now, if you've read the Bible some, you've probably noticed that there is much anointing with oil in the Bible, especially on one's head. This is because anointing with oil was quite common in ancient Middle Eastern culture. You see, olive trees were common to the region, and one of the many uses of olive oil was as a cosmetic Men and women would often use olive oil as part of preparing themselves to look and even smell nice, if they, especially if there was an upcoming get-together. You'd freshen yourself. You'd make yourself look really nice. However, if you were rich, you did not use mere olive oil to anoint yourself. You used perfumed oils, oil mixed with supremely pleasing fragrances like frankincense or myrrh. This oil would not only freshen your complexion, but also perfume your head, your hair, and even your clothes as it ran down from your head. And remember, 
Smelling pleasant was not a given in this day. Most people did not have many changes of clothing. Doing laundry was arduous, and daily bathing was rare. Moreover, perfume or fragrant oil was difficult to produce and therefore very expensive. To be anointed with precious oil, then, was quite a blessing and a privilege usually only reserved for the rich. Sometimes, though, a person might use perfumed oil, that is, precious oil, in an act of generous hospitality. A host might take some of his precious oil and anoint the head of his guests, not only allowing the guests to enjoy the fragrance, but also that ma- making that person smell pleasing to others. To be anointed in such a way was a mark of high honor and even great affection from the host. Here at the beginning of verse 2, David at first seems to be referring to this very honoring and very pleasant anointing with precious perfumed oil. Already, this is a strong description of the rich goodness of united worship with God's people. But there's more, because David expands the image with the phrase, coming down upon the beard. Ah, we see that this is not a picture of just any person being anointed with some precious oil on his head. The picture David has in mind is actually of a man being anointed and being anointed with so much precious oil that it runs down his head, down the sides of his face, and even into his beard. And we're not talking about most modern American beards, which are usually short. Hebrew Hebrew beards were often long and flowing. This man has precious oil running down into that kind of beard. Such an act would be quite costly and extremely generous. Quite a gift that would make this man's head and beard smell quite wonderful. So we see the image of blessing and honor reaches another level. But David's still not done because he adds another detail in line three that further expands the picture. David adds, even Aaron's beard. Ah, so we're not talking about just any man receiving abundant precious oil on his head running down into his beard. We're talking about Aaron and his special anointing. And you may say, who's Aaron? And where did he come from all of a sudden? Well, any Israelite would instantly recognize both the name Aaron and the event of Aaron's anointing because both of these are recorded in the Torah. Aaron was the brother of Moses and the first high priest to serve in God's tabernacle. God appointed Aaron and his family line to be Israel's only line of priests. No other family lines in Israel were allowed to do the mediatorial work of Aaron and his sons in God's tabernacle. But to serve as high priest, Aaron had to undergo ritual preparations, which included being anointed with oil. And not just any oil, but the fragrant and holy anointing oil that was specifically designed by God. Listen to the command from God to Moses in Exodus chapter 30, verses 22 to 25. This is Exodus chapter 30, verses 22 to 25. Moreover, Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Take also for yourself the finest of spices, of flowing myrrh, 500 shekels, and of fragrant cinnamon, half as much, 250, and of fragrant cane, 250, and of cassia, 500, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and of olive oil, a hin. You shall make of these a holy anointing oil, a perfume mixture, the work of a perfumer, perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. 
This oil was used by Moses to anoint all the holy implements of the temple, or rather the tabernacle, and Aaron and his sons to be priests. But no layman in Israel could ever receive this oil or even make it. If he did, he was to be cut off. That is, he was to be put to death. This was a very special oil. But why did God command the creation of it? The preciousness of this oil illustrated the preciousness of the high priestly ministry as well as the great glory of God. But more than that, the, pre- the, the specialness of this oil also marked out Aaron and all the special implements of the temple as holy, purified from uncleanness and set apart to God for special service. Moses anointed Aaron in accordance with God's command. And what do you think that experience was like for Aaron? Talk about an honor. Talk about a privilege. Talk about an awesome event. And I mean awesome in the sense of filling one with awe. Aaron was not being anointed as a mere favored guest in someone's household. But God himself was marking out Aaron as the favored mediatorial high priest of all God's people. And this only happened once. This was a once in a lifetime experience for Aaron, a great blessing and a sobering honor as abundant holy oil runs down Aaron's head, his hair, and down into his long beard. No one other than the priests would have this kind of experience and even the priests would only experience this once. But there's one more element to this picture. And it comes in the last line of verse 2. David says, coming down upon the edge of his robes. There's so much holy, fragrant, anointing oil running down Aaron's head that it drips down and perfumes his clothes as well. And what clothes does Aaron, the high priest, wear? The holy robe and the ephod specially designed by God. What's significant about having the oil on the garments There is a sanctification sense, marks those out as holy as well, but also just practically, it means the fragrance will last. When Aaron again puts on the high priestly garb and engages in intercessory work, there will again be the smell of the holy anointing oil on his clothes, and he will remember the special anointing that he was given by God. Now these lines... Together, finally, they create a very impressive scene. Aaron's abundant holy anointing from God. But remember, all of this is a comparison. David says, the goodness of united worship with God's people is like this. It is like the holy blessing that Aaron uniquely experienced in being Israel's first high priest. This is a surprising comparison. Yet this is the divinely inspired word. Clearly, the united worship of God's people is a holy blessing. It is an awesome and holy blessing. But that's not all it is. United worship is also supernatural refreshment. Supernatural refreshment. Let's look at David's second describing image presented in the beginning of verse 3. David says, It is like the dew of Hermon 
coming down upon the mountains of Zion. Like the first image, this second image features delayed identification. David presents us with one image of goodness, and then he adds that image in such a way that it magnifies the originally understood blessing. David first describes the goodness of united worship as being like the dew of Hermon. You ask, what's Hermon? Well, Hermon's a mountain, Mount Hermon. At about 9,200 feet above sea level, Mount Hermon was the tallest mountain in Palestine. Still, I, still is. Situated in the far northeast of ancient Israel, today the mountain technically sits outside of Israel's borders. It's in between Syria and Lebanon. In ancient times, Mount Hermon was well known for precipitation and dew, just as it is today. If you think of New York City, New York City is known for skyscrapers. Los Angeles is known for traffic. Mount Hermon was known for dew. The dew and precipitation from Mount Hermon made the lower slopes of the mountain extremely lush and fertile. Contrast this with much of the rest of the land of Israel, which was far more desert-like and very dependent on seasonal rains for greenery and crop harvests. Therefore, when David brings to mind the dew of Hermon, he is bringing into the mind of his listeners the cool and beneficial water refreshment that such a mountain could provide. David's image is already comparing the united worship of God's people with profound refreshment. But then David expands and magnifies the image with his second line, which reads, coming down upon the mountains of Zion. Ah, so David's not simply talking about Mount Hermon and its refreshing slopes. Rather, the picture is of the dew or the light rain of Hermon coming down on the mountains of Jerusalem. That's what he means by mountains of Zion. Those are the mountains of Jerusalem. Now, this was not physically possible. Hermon and Jerusalem are way too far away from one another for Hermon's dew or rain to actually reach down to Jerusalem. Nevertheless, David imagines Hermon's dew or its light rain as if it did come down, or as if it would come down on Jerusalem, as if God were supernaturally making that possible. And what an image of refreshment that is, because Jerusalem is part of Israel's largely arid climate. Moreover, the three religious feasts of Israel took place during Jerusalem's hotter months. There was much less rainfall. Jerusalem would probably have been pretty dry and pretty hot when David wrote this song. But imagine, with David, if the dew of Hermon suddenly came down all over parched Jerusalem. Imagine how cooling and comforting that dew would be. Imagine the sudden revitalization of the land and its greenery. David says, this is how good united worship with God's people is. It is supernatural refreshment coming down from above. With these two descriptive images from David, we see the second point of David's song, the goodness of united worship described. With the second point, we now have even more reason to treasure united worship with God's people. Who wouldn't want to experience holy blessing comparable to the special abundant anointing of God's first high priest? Who wouldn't want to experience supernatural refreshment comparable to the cool dew of Hermon on Jerusalem? But David has one more point for us. 
There's a reason that united worship with God's people is so good and is such a blessing. And David succinctly tells us that reason at the end of verse 3. Look at verse 3 again. David says, For there Yahweh commanded the blessing, life forever. Here we see David's last point, the goodness of united worship explained. The line begins with the word for. The word introduces a reason for why what David has declared and described above is true. The there in this verse refers to what David just mentioned earlier in the verse, the mountains of Zion, the very place in which the brethren of Israel have come together, according to verse 1. He's talking about Jerusalem, for there in Jerusalem. What's so special about Jerusalem? David says, Jerusalem is the place for which Yahweh commanded or Yahweh appointed the blessing. Now, first, notice, recall that Yahweh, written in our translations as Lord in all capital letters, is the name that David uses here. This name has a background. It was a name revealed by God to Moses in the burning bush. The name means, I am. And it emphasizes God's eternality, his self-sufficiency, and his immutability. Immutability just means that God does not change. David is bringing back this to mind with the use of the term. Also, the name Yahweh brings to mind God's special and unchanging covenant with Israel. No other nation had the name Yahweh revealed to it except God's chosen people. God's chosen people, that is the people of Israel. So when David uses this name Yahweh here in this last verse, he emphasizes the steadfast nature of the blessing Israel's God has appointed for Jerusalem. This blessing is connected to God's unchanging covenant character. But why is Jerusalem so special to God? Merely because God chose it to be the place for the special manifestation of his presence. Even in the Torah, God promised, this is before the Israelites had gone into the land, God promised that he would one day make his special presence dwell in a particular place in Israel. God later revealed that Jerusalem was that place. Jerusalem didn't earn this privilege. God simply, according to his own good pleasure, chose Jerusalem to be the place that he would cause his name to dwell. First, the tabernacle, and then the temple were established in Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant was brought to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem became the site of God's Shekinah glory, his beautiful, visible glory. And it also became the center of all worship of Yahweh. You had to have a sacrifice to Yahweh, you brought it to Jerusalem. That was the place God designated. David reminds us, though, that as the site of God's dwelling place, God commanded or appointed a blessing to rest on and to emanate from this city. What is this blessing? David defines it for us. Life forever. What does David mean with this phrase? Well, it's not exactly that Jerusalem contained a fountain of youth. Nevertheless, the God who gave and sustains all life on earth appointed abundant life to flow down into and from Jerusalem like a fountain. You see, wherever the God of life is present, there is going to be the blessing of abundant and even everlasting life. Listen to what David says in another psalm, 
Psalm 36, verses 6 to 7. Psalm 36, verses 6 to 7. David says of God, or David says to God, They drink their fill of the abundance of your house, and you give them to drink of the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. The God of life cannot help but give abundant life where he is. And where did the God of life choose his special presence to dwell? Jerusalem. Jerusalem became the center of life-giving blessing from God. And God's special care and blessing was on that city. This is why it was such a big deal for God to let Jerusalem be destroyed in 587 B.C. God was... God's patience, God's holiness was tried so much that he says, I have to do this even to my own special city. But even as the city was being destroyed, even when he affirmed that it would be destroyed, he nevertheless also affirmed his continual blessing on that city. God affirmed his special relationship and declared, I will not forget you, Jerusalem. I will restore you. My coming king will reign from you, for you are my special beloved city and the place of my name. Now there is in this phrase, life forever, a sense of even life beyond this earth. The blessing of life that God gives to Jerusalem has no foreseeable stopping point. There's no end in sight. Abundant life is made present in Jerusalem, but that appointed blessing extends forever, even bringing immortality. Certainly we can connect this phrase to the work of Christ that is later accomplished in Jerusalem, right? Jesus' sacrifice was just outside Jerusalem. And by Jesus' sacrifice, he brings everlasting life to all who believe in him. That was part of the Jerusalem blessing. But what does all this have to do with David and the feast? Well, since Jerusalem was the site of God's life-giving presence and the place of his special blessing, It is only natural, David says, for God to bless the united worship that centers in Jerusalem. Let's say it another way. It is fitting for God to bless the brethren of Israel when they dwell together in God's special site of abundant blessing. One element of the poetry of this psalm subtly underscores this point. And such a short song... Any wordplay or rhyme in the Hebrew really stands out. And there is a very noticeable rhyme between the first and last lines of this psalm. At the end of verse 1, the word brothers is achim in Hebrew. Where at the end of verse 3, the word for life is chayim. Very similar sounds. Achim and chayim. Gotta love those Hebrew sounds. What's the point? Well, David wants his audience to see and even hear the connection between united worship of the brethren and the blessing of life from God. There's a connection. United worship of the brethren, blessing of life from God. To sum up this third point then, why is it so good and pleasant for Israel to dwell together in Jerusalem? Because God appointed special blessing on the place of his presence and his worship. 
Let's now put together everything that we've seen in this psalm. In verse 1, David declares the goodness of united worship as God's people. In verses 2 to 3, David describes the goodness of united worship. It's an amazing holy blessing, and it's a tremendous supernatural refreshment. And then at the end of verse 3, David explains the goodness of united worship. God blesses the place of his presence and the appointed site of his worship. Imagine now that you are an Israelite hearing this song from King David. Would you not be moved to treasure the united worship of God's people? If you had been treating the fellowship of the assembly lightly, would you not be motivated to take these gatherings more seriously? For who would not want to experience the goodness that David declares? Who would want to deny himself holy blessing? Who would want to deny himself supernatural refreshment? Who would not want to take advantage of the blessing of life that was appointed by God in Jerusalem? But you say, we're not Jews though, and we don't go to Jerusalem. So how is this word relevant to us? Ah, My brothers and sisters, all the words of this psalm are still true for Christians, though we apply them in a slightly different way. There is a sense in which these words will find literal fulfillment again. As we said, book five of the Psalms generally looks to the future kingdom of God on earth. Jerusalem will one day again be the literal site of God's glorious presence and special blessing. We, as God's people who are grafted in, we can look forward to being part of that and of hearing even this song of ascents being sung by people again as they go up from the nations to Jerusalem. However, though there is that future sense, even today, the principles of this psalm find ready application in the New Testament church. Because like the Israelites of David's day, we too are brethren, not by blood, but by the bond of Christ. We too come together for united worship, not in the temple of Jerusalem, but as the temple, as the temple of God, which is the church. We no longer need to travel all the way to Jerusalem to worship before God's presence. We have God's presence within us as the new temple. In a sense, wherever we assemble is God's temple and even is, in a way, Jerusalem. Remember what Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well in the Gospel of John. She was really concerned about what the correct site for worshiping God was. But Jesus says to her, The hour is coming. This is John 4.23, by the way. John 4.23. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Moreover, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.16, this is 2 Corinthians 6.16, for we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And just as God appointed Jerusalem as the site of God's special presence, proper worship, and abundant blessing, so God has similarly appointed in this age the church. Consider some of the declarations made in the New Testament about the church. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus called the church my church. 
He promised to build his church, and he promised that the gates of Hades would never overcome it. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul discusses the variety of gifts that God has given to the church via its members for the building up of the church. In Ephesians 1, 22 to 23, Paul identifies Christ as head of the church and then the church itself as the body and fullness of Christ. It's the body of Christ. In Ephesians 3, 21, Paul prays that God would glorify himself in the church. In Ephesians 5, Paul says that Jesus loved the church as his bride and gave himself up for her. Even Hebrews 12 figuratively connects the church to Zion and to the heavenly Jerusalem. With such declarations, will God not specially bless his church as the site of appointed worship, just as he did Jerusalem? So I ask you, Calvary, do you realize what a great blessing you've been given by God in the church? Unlike Jerusalem, to which worshipers often came only three times a year for about a week or so, you get to gather in united worship with your brethren every week, even multiple times a week. Like the ancient Israelites, you get to come to the same place to do the same things for the same reason. You come to God's church to enjoy holy blessing, to experience supernatural refreshment. And, oh, I skipped the line. Let me, let me say that again. You get to praise God, you get to obey him, and you get to serve your brethren out of love and holy fear for God. It's the same thing. And this is what I was going to say. You, like the Israelites, you get to experience the same goodness that the psalmist declares in Psalm 133. You get to enjoy holy blessing. You get to experience supernatural refreshment from God in God's appointed place of abundant life. So the psalmist's exhortation in this psalm is indeed also to you. Calvary, brothers and sisters, Treasure the united worship of God's people. Treasure your dwelling together, your serving together, your hearing the word together, and your praising God together in the church. This is a great word. But what are the practical implications of having such a treasure of blessing from God? As we close, let me just suggest five to you. Number one, be in church. Don't skimp on church. God has laid before you a feast of blessing. Why wouldn't you want to get the full benefit from that? Don't just do the bare minimum you think God requires for church. Your local church is a gift to you from God. Reap the blessing of it as much as you can. Come early, stay late, get involved. Be part of Sunday school. Be part of home groups. Be part of men and women's ministry. Be part of prayer ministry, etc. After all, don't you want the blessing? Number two, make church a priority. Make church a priority. It's unfortunately common for Christians today to consider church last when arranging life. 
work, vacation, children's activities, family visits, stressful life developments, so frequently and so quickly cause one to skip out on church. If church were a burden, this would make sense. But we've seen today that united worship is a great blessing. Why do we so easily give that up? Do we not believe God? Do we think we know better? Therefore, instead of saying, this is what we're going to do, and then we'll consider church, give church priority. And no, I'm not saying that it's a sin ever to miss a Sunday or an assembly, and there are legitimate reasons to not be in church. But for the sake of blessing, give church priority. Number three, emphasize commonality, not differences in your church. Emphasize commonality and not differences. It's easy not to feel very, very united in your church when all you think about are the differences that you see or notice in your assembly. I'm premillennial, but he's amillennial. Or he's a Trump supporter, but I'm a Trump critic. Or he likes to raise his hands during the worship, but that makes me feel uncomfortable. These differences, they're not trivial, but they should not get in the way of affirming and being encouraged by our more basic unity. We love Christ as Lord. We know that salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone. We believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. We affirm the need for holy living. We treasure expository preaching. These truths give us remarkable bonds. Let us revel in them and in the God who makes them possible. Number four, work towards greater unity. Church unity is always centered around the truth. So the greater we understand the truth, the more united we will become and the more blessing we will experience. Therefore, read the scriptures. Subject yourselves to the teaching of your teachers in the church, your pastor and your elders. Listen to sermons from men of good testimony. Talk about the scripture with your brethren. Don't let American individualism give you an excuse to basically become your own pope no longer willing to listen to others or to learn or to subject your interpretations of the Bible to the scrutiny of the church community. Maintain a teachable attitude even as you are forging your biblical convictions. Moreover, serve your brethren. Seek more and more ways to demonstrate your love to your brethren. As you do these things, as we do these things, we will feel more and more the blessing that church was always designed to be. Number five, finally, uproot sin in the body. Uproot sin in the body. Nothing kills united worship like sin. If you're in sin, your bond with your churchmates is blocked and your ability to worship God is shut down. If you continue in sin, you may prove yourself to not even be part of God's people. Maybe you're not a brother and you will consequently be judged by God. Therefore, Repent. Turn again to God. Experience again the holy blessing and supernatural refreshment of the true worship with God's people. And where you notice habits of sin in your brethren, go after them gently and in love so that they might not miss out on the benefit of united worship nor become a corrupting influence. Dear Calvary, God has given us a great opportunity for blessing in the church. So let's take full advantage.
as the Spirit urges us today, treasure the united worship of God's people. Let's pray. Lord, we have such a great blessing before us. But Lord, as I even think about my own upbringing and my own life experiences, I can see just how the forces of the world today draw us away from the blessing that you proclaim. That's not the way we've done it in the past, or that seems a little extreme, or I've got all these other things that I need to get to. Lord, you've given us a great gift. You've made the church your side of abundant blessing. So God, by your spirit, I pray that you would enable us to take advantage of it. I know there are some difficult situations that make it harder to do that. But God, I pray that the heart of the people would be to treasure this fellowship, treasure this church, treasure any church that they get the experience just to visit or be a part of. Because we have a bond. We have a bond as your people. And the united worship is so precious. Lord, let this truth find its way deep into the hearts of everybody who's heard it today. And I pray, God, that we would rejoice in you for the blessing you've given us in the church. In Jesus' name, amen.